You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey, hey, this is John Hope Bryant, entrepreneur and a fellow builder just like you. Thanks to the help of iHeartRadio and Prudential Financial, I'd like to present to you my brand new podcast. It's called Building the Good Life, where each week a special friend and I will unpack and talk in detail about financial literacy, building generational wealth, building back community, building the best version of you. Make sure to listen to Building the Good Life on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us your attention. We need everything you got fast. Waiting on reparations. We be the illest podcast. Tune in every Thursday. Politics and wordplay. We fight for the people because they got us in the worst way. From the hill to Brazil, Bombay to Kanye. From the left enclave to what the neocons say. Every Thursday, cop the heady conversation. And, and break us off with some bread because we waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast, The Shadow Girls. I grew up near the banks of the Green River and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name. Prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant. But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer. It's about the victims. We stayed in the woods. He always liked to go in the woods. Listen to The Shadow Girls on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just off Madison Avenue on East 73rd Street, the lunchtime crowded Via Quadrono fills every sidewalk table, as well as the seats in its pandemic-inspired shed. It's a cheerful neighborhood joint catering to a young crowd with great coffee, sandwiches, and pasta. A sense of triumph pervades the place. Among all the restaurants closed by COVID-19, Via Quadrono is more popular than ever. Often from a townhouse next door, a stooped figure emerges from an upper floor and makes her way down the stately front steps past the millennials. 
She looks smaller than she once did, as if scrunched by the circumstances that led her here. Though she still has the white corkscrew curls that made her stand out in any art fair or gallery opening, and the stern, almost imperious mien for which she was known. A little over a decade ago, Anne Friedman was among the most powerful art dealers in New York. Her fiefdom was the Nodler Gallery, from which she sold works by many of the best-known artists of the mid-20th century. Mark Rothko, Willem de Kooning, Barnett Newman, Clifford Still, and Jackson Pollock. Today, the Nodler is gone. Just three blocks down Madison, on the north side of 70th Street, stand the ghosts of the now infamous gallery. Two adjoining limestone mansions in the Italian Renaissance style, with ornate stone arches topped by decorative balconies. In the gallery's own Renaissance, a royal blue awning announced the Nodler's two buildings in capital letters. In this season of art fraud, we're examining the rise and fall of the Nodler Gallery. It's a story about one of New York City's oldest and most celebrated galleries dealing in world-class art, and how its doors would close forever in the face of insurmountable pressure. Ultimately, in the form of looming prison time, we're talking, of course, about paintings, fake paintings, or more plainly, forgeries. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. Tens of millions of dollars would change hands between a cast of characters before it was all over. A few profited, some were cheated, and at least one person would find themselves behind bars. With me today is Michael Schneerson, a longtime contributing editor for Vanity Fair, whose feature story on the Nodler Gallery appeared in the magazine shortly after the scandal broke in the spring of 2012. Michael is also the author of Boom, Mad Money, Mega Dealers, and the Rise of Contemporary Art, a compelling and entertaining overview of the dealers who helped make the contemporary art market what it is today. The honest dealers, I hasten to add, because generally these dealers were and are honest, driven by a passion for their artists far more than profit. Here's Michael Schneerson. I've written a lot of articles for Vanity Fair, but the Nodler case sticks in my mind because at the heart of it lies an unresolved mystery. The story, of course, has taken some turns that even Ann Friedman could not have predicted. You could say that about the whole contemporary art market, I suppose. Who would have imagined at the start of the century that an artist named Jeff Koons would make a supersized stainless steel rabbit that sold at auction in May 2019 for $91 million, the highest price ever paid for a living artist's work? Who could have predicted that a young Brooklyn artist named Jean-Michel Basquiat would make his oddly haunting abstract portraits of tribal figures and totems in a basement for drug money, only to have them sell after his premature death for as much as $110 million. Record-breaking sales like that have done more than juice the art market. They've led to a gray market of private dealings that thrive in a hot climate. 
It's important to note that the art market is still the world's largest unregulated business. Legal business, anyway. You have to do what you say you'll do when striking a deal. You have to pay your taxes, and that's about it. I remember going to a mega dealer's home in East Hampton one night and commenting that the art market was the last unregulated multi-billion dollar equity market in the world. Our host said, and let's try to keep it that way, as his guests raised their glasses and toasted. When a dealer goes further, trafficking in paintings that turn out to be fakes, is there any pattern to explain why that happens? Usually, it starts with someone down on their luck, a dealer or perhaps an unsuccessful artist. The fraudster may have no intention of doing more than tweaking a painting to make it more saleable or fabricating just one work to pay the bills. But what if he or she turns out to be awfully good at it and the dealer in desperate straits buys it? What if the dealer then sells it for a profit to someone unaware of the fraud? And so a fascinating dance begins. It's a dance about the art that's changing hands, but even more so a dance about the story behind the art. At first, the fraudster tells a bit of the story, just one or two tantalizing, if fabricated bits, to explain how and when the painting was done. And then, as the dance goes on, the victim, let's call him the mark, grows ever more eager to hear more. After all, the more he hears, the more the expanding story seems to authenticate the art he's bought and the money he'll lose if it turns out the story was a scam, until the fraudster and the mark are intertwined, each so eager to believe the story that for both, it sort of comes true. So it would become for Anne Friedman, the Nodal Gallery's director, and a mysterious woman named Glafira Rosales, who, on her visits to the Nodler starting in 1994, always seemed to have another mid-century masterpiece under her arm. As we embark on this exploration, it's my opinion that Anne sold those paintings convinced they were real, until the day Glafira brought the whole story crashing down. I don't believe Anne knew they were fakes and sold them as fakes. I have to be honest with you, Alec. I disagree. I, I think you couldn't be a well-known, long-time dealer in top-tier art and sell paintings one after another with no clear trail of ownership, unless you were acting with criminal intent. I think Anne knew exactly what she was doing, if not from the beginning, then soon enough, and that she hoped she could fool the art world over and over again, as indeed she did for some 14 years. So the first question is whether Anne Friedman knew what she was buying when she bought these works for whopping discounts from Glafira Rosales and her confederates. And the next question is, should Anne's own customers to whom she retailed these paintings, should they have been more aware of what they were doing? There's an argument in the art world that when you purchase an expensive work of art, it's your obligation as a sophisticated buyer to do your research, talk to experts, and so forth. Robert Storr, former director of the Yale School of Art and one of the country's most important art critics, said at a conference not long ago that collectors are quote-unquote stupid to spend millions of dollars on a work of art without personally investigating its authenticity. And I think he has a point. That's an interesting idea. So it's your responsibility if you're the buyer to figure out if my art is fake? I've got a gallery full of art in the Upper East Side. Some of it is real, some of it is... Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. 
Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Not? You decide. Well, that's a fair point. I guess my reluctance to think the worst of Anne has as much to do with how I felt about the gallery as what I felt about her. I'm not a serious collector of contemporary art, far from it. But I like looking at art, and on occasion I've bought a painting, not for seven or eight figures, but maybe six. In fact, I've been the victim of an art forgery myself, but we'll get to that later. The Nodler felt different from almost every other gallery in New York. There was a stateliness about the place, a touch of class, old-world manners. The Nodler didn't just sell contemporary art. It sold modern art, too, which is to say art by artists who started before World War II, anyone from Brock and Picasso to Francis Bacon. A sweeping stairway led from the showrooms to the offices above, where Anne Friedman presided. The true marvel of Nodler was its legacy. It was the oldest gallery in New York, opened in 1848. Through those 145 years, it had never closed, not in the Civil War, not in World War II. Through every calamity in American history since the antebellum era, the Nodler had survived. But who was Nodler, and how did the venerable gallery get its start in New York? That's after the break. Attention, we need everything you got fast. Waiting on reparations, we be the illest podcast. Tune in every Thursday, politics and wordplay. We fight for the people because they got us in the worst way. From the hill to Brazil, Bombay to Kanye. From the left enclave to what the neocons say. Every Thursday, cop the heady conversation. And then break us off with some bread because we waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. 
Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport, and entertainment. From DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal, I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start, and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was in 1852 that a young and ambitious gallery assistant named Michael Nodler disembarked from a transatlantic ship in New York, scanning the busy waterfront for the face he hoped to find. Soon enough, he spotted his man, William Schaus. Schaus had come from Paris four years earlier to start a New York branch of a company called Goupil Viber AC, soon to be known as Nodler. Michael Nodler was a Goupil employee in Paris. That's Dick McIntosh. For years... Dick worked at the Nodler Gallery as its historian. He was on the verge of publishing the definitive history of the gallery when its gates came crashing down. Out of Goupil met Michael Nodler in Stuttgart in the course of business and brought him to Goupil and Company in Paris. And Michael Nodler trained in Paris for a good 10 or 12 years. He was totally a vassal of Adolf Goupil. William Schaus was the first person sent here to open the gallery, who arrived in 1847 to scout things out. To help us understand how the Nodler became the first art gallery in New York, and how for decades it remained the venerable Nodler Gallery, as if venerable was part of its title, I've asked Nodler historian Dick McIntosh and Francis Beatty, two art market experts, to share some Nodler history with me at my home on the Upper East Side. The fact that I live on East 73rd Street, steps from Friedman Arts, is just a coincidence. Though it does mean I get more sightings of Anne than I otherwise would. And to be candid, I've often found myself turning a corner at almost the exact moment Anne reaches the corner from the other side, or spotting that mop of silver curls half a block away, heading in my direction. I would be less than honest if I didn't admit I've taken avoidance measures darting between parked cars or turning so abruptly that I barge into strangers. Partly it's that I have nothing to say to her, but also I know that my Vanity Fair story, while it seemed fair to me, cut her deeply. That's never my intent with the magazine story, but sometimes the facts just go where they will. At any rate, there's not much to say other than to ask questions she'd rather not answer and to watch her stalk off in a huff. Dick, I know the firm that came to be Nodler didn't start as an art gallery. What was it exactly? When you walked into the place, what did you see? A store. The family always called it the store. 
which is an indication of its very eclectic nature. It would be very, very pretentious to call yourself a gallery because it's like calling yourself a museum. And that would be, I think, at that point, very inappropriate. That's Francis Beatty. Francis has been an art dealer for nearly 40 years, first in partnership with the late legendary Richard Feigen, now with her son Alex, a tall and suave dealer in his own right, who spends every spare moment schmoozing with tech billionaires ready to cover their walls with art. The point was to sell the excess stock of the Goupil company from Paris. Paris The technology of making reproductions had improved to the point that many more, a much larger quantity of reproductions could be made, could be manufactured. Did reproductions usually mean engravings? Originally it meant engravings, but by this time there were lithographs which were the cheapest and easiest to produce in the largest quantity, and etchings and mixed media. At the same time, though, in the 1840s, when this store opened, someone was painting, right? Even in America? Thomas Cole, Asher B. Durand. The whole Hudson River School. Hudson River School was happening even then. Plus, let us not forget the... German-American Emanuel Leitze, who painted the famous Washington Washington Crossing crossing the Delaware. Delaware. Right. In fact, Goupil made reproductions of the painting in all sizes in Paris and sent them to America, where they sold like hotcakes. Mark Twain famously said that if General Washington had known the extent of reproductions that were going to be made of his image, he'd have thought twice about crossing the Delaware in the first place. How did Michael Nodler get involved? When Goupil and Schaus had a serious disagreement over how profits from the New York gallery were going to be divided. Schaus quit and set up his own business. And Michael Nodler was dispatched here to continue on in 1852. How would you describe the store's evolution from selling reproductions to actual paintings for the store to become the first real art gallery in New York? gradual, and then it kind of starts to really pick up steam in the 1880s. Then you have this extraordinary kind of explosion for the next 30 years of them bringing major, major pictures, Goya, Turner, I mean, just these legendary names of incredible quality. To America. Did a few collectors become the linchpins of Nodler's success? I'm thinking Henry Clay Frick, for one, the great steel industrialist. Frick, for many years, was Nodler's biggest client. The first painting he bought was 1894. And immediately afterwards, he began buying in real quantity. And his close association with the Nodler Gallery lasted for the rest of his lifetime. In other words, until 1919 when he died. And when he died, Charles Carstairs, the man who had sold him the first painting, was a pallbearer at his funeral. Michael Nodler made the gallery grow, and so did his sons. As it did, it began moving uptown, up along Broadway, then over to Fifth Avenue, 
following the city's own restless course. The location of the store was important for two reasons. First, it was in the Lafarge buildings. The choice of the location was determined by a network of French people in New York, one of whom was the father of Jean Lafarge, the artist, who was a real estate investor, a successful real estate investor in early New York. Secondly, due to the rise of department stores in Paris in the mid-19th century, which is where they really began in the form that we know them today, it was clear to all concerned that it was a good idea to be located near a department store because that's where everybody went for every last little thing. As the Nodlers migrated, they started taking on more original art, even oil paintings. They sold to the founders of New American Fortunes. Vanderbilts, Astors, and Rockefellers all frequented Nodler. So did Henry Flagler of Standard Oil and sugar refiner H.O. Havemeyer. In the course of two days, railroad magnate Jay Gould bought 22 pictures. All of these grandees had more than paintings on the walls of their brand new mansions. They had collections. Then in the early 1920s, the dashing Roland Ballet, a nodler on his mother's side, came from Paris in his 20s to work at the family business. The last of the Nodler family directors, Roland had no choice, really, but to join the store when he came of age. Roland liked to recall that his very first memory of meeting an artist came when he was just five. His parents brought him to the Parisian countryside estate of Giverny to have lunch with Claude Monet. They brought a ham that got sliced at a table in the garden for the rest of his life, Roland would remember the white-bearded artist eating the ham and looking at him with kindly eyes against a backdrop of water lilies. Roland arrived in New York in 1924 at the age of 22, drinking most of the way with Pierre Matisse, the artist's son, who would remain a lifelong pal. He came bearing other friendships with some of Paris's best contemporary artists, Braque, Leger, and Picasso. To his chagrin, he found his older family members in New York underwhelmed by the paintings he brought. Put them in the basement, they told him, when he showed them the new cubists that Paris had embraced. The children will take them. The Nodler wasn't avant-garde, as its family directors reminded Roland. It sold the art of its times, or perhaps more accurately, it sold the art of the times its buyers embraced, which tended to be a decade or two behind contemporary art. Roland had no choice but to grit his teeth and sell his clients what they wanted. In the aftermath of World War II, a new school of art arose to show its devastation, the often brutal sweeping brushstrokes of abstract expressionism. Yet Nodler kept its distance as painters like Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning, Clifford Still, Barnett Newman, and Mark Rothko rose with an... Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. New generation of dealers, namely Betty Parsons, Sidney Janis, and Leo Castelli. These were the groundbreaking dealers of the 1950s. Very few people were buying contemporary art. If Pollock hadn't had Peggy Guggenheim, he would have starved. They were all starving in the 50s. They really weren't, not until sort of Andy Warhol started to make money out of art. Under Roland Ballet, the Nodler was running out of steam. Having missed the post-war era, it went on to overlook pop art, too. By the end of the 60s, it had moved to 21 East 70th, then proceeded to spend so much money renovating its newly acquired mansion that it nearly went broke. The Nodler needed an angel, someone far more deep-pocketed than Roland Ballet. In 1971, the Nodler found that angel in Armand Hammer, the billionaire industrialist. Knowing how financially imperiled Roland Ballet's Nodler was, Hammer bought the gallery for $2.5 million in 1971, For that modest sum, Hammer got Nodler's business, its artists, its reputation, and history. He also got the Italian Renaissance mansion at 19 East 70th Street. 
Not long after that deal, Hammer would buy the adjacent mansion at 21 East 70th Street. For Hammer, the deal was as much about real estate as art. Hammer hired one of his two grandsons, Michael, to run the gallery as part of a family foundation. Incidentally, Michael's son, Army Hammer, would become a well-known Hollywood actor. Still, Michael Hammer needed top-rate dealers who could finally bring contemporary artists to musty old Nodler. He found them in Lawrence Rubin and John Richardson. Rubin was a widely respected private dealer whose artists included Richard Diebenkorn, Robert Motherwell, and Robert Rauschenberg. Larry Rubin was very famous because he was the brother of Bill Rubin, who I had actually worked for in the 70s. They were arguably two of the most important people in the entire art world. Bill Rubin was the chief curator of the Museum of Modern Art, and that was a time when the chief curator of the Museum of Modern Art was more important than any director anywhere. And the fact that his brother actually ran Nodler was a, let's say, a subject of both admiration and envy and some sort of, I would say, snarkiness because people would say, well, Bill Rubin's having a big Frank Stella show at the Museum of Modern Art, which would, of course, make Frank Stella's incredibly valuable. And at the same time, Stella was represented by his brother, who was running the Nodler Gallery. So there was some more than whispering about conflict of interest, but um, it was evaded by Bill Rubin very effectively. We'll be back in a minute. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 9021 OMG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind the scenes stories that actually happen. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 90210 super fan and radio host Sissini sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting, Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> Listen to 9021 OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
conquer your New Year's resolution to be more productive with the Before Breakfast podcast. In each bite-sized daily episode, time management and productivity expert Laura Vanderkam teaches you how to make the most of your time, both at work and at home. These are the practical suggestions you need to get more done with your day. Just as lifting weights keeps our bodies strong as we age, learning new skills is the mental equivalent of pumping iron. Listen to Before Breakfast wherever you get your podcasts. Larry brought with him a number of artists who really almost overnight returned the Nodler to some sort of eminence. I mean, I'm thinking of, obviously, Stella, as you mentioned, Diebenkorn, Richard Diebenkorn. Another huge coup. And wasn't Robert Rauschenberg there for at least part of the time? Yes, I think Rauschenberg was there and Motherwell. You know, abstract expressionism was Bill and Larry's kind of sweet spot. Mm. And uh, so, you know, those artists were artists that were celebrated at the Museum of Modern Art and celebrated and I'm sure ensured Nodler's financial viability and success at that time. Along with Larry Rubin, Michael Hammer's other heavy gun was John Richardson, an English-born critic, curator, Picasso biographer, and man about town. He told naughty stories about wealthy people and made them clamor for more. Along with handling artists he brought to Nodler himself, Richardson was induced to take on Salvador Dali, or as he came to put it, to join the Dali team. Dali had been with Nodler since the 1920s, when Roland Ballet had brought him in. Roland's wife, Felice, tells the story of how he brought Dolly to Nodler. Roland was a very good friend of Christian Dior since they were young. And Christian Dior was had a little gallery in Paris. And he and Roland had lunch one day. And Dior said to him, you know, I'm representing a Spanish artist. I'm having a show of his right now. Would you come to the gallery after lunch? And Roland said, sure, I'd love to. And he went to the gallery and looked at the paintings. And it was this young Spanish artist named Salvador Dali. And of course, Nodla Gallery was a big deal gallery. And Christian Dior just had this little thing. And he said to Roland, do you really like him? He said, yes, I like his work very much. And Dior said, would you be interested in taking him on for Nodler? And Roland said, I really would. I'd like to meet him and I'd like to to see more of his work. And that's what happened. And as Roland always tells the story, I took Dolly to Nodler and Christian Dior went on to the dress business. Dolly's health was fragile now, but the old surrealist remained immensely popular and sold out biannual shows at Nodler with a little help from the staff. In an interview for Vanity Fair, Richardson described Dolly's poignant situation. It was fascinating because he couldn't draw anymore, Richardson recalled of Dolly. His hands were too weak for him to do the work. All he could do was sign his name. His eyes had gone. To put Dolly in a good mood, the staff would bring female models down to the basement, have them undress, and tell them to roll around naked on large pieces of rolling paper smeared with blue paint. For one show, Dali had the idea to do holograms of his own work, but he hadn't made them yet, Richardson explained. 
In order to do them, we had to find some original Dalis. So Roland and I went down to the basement, and we found a bunch of old 19th century sculpture of no great distinction. We got someone to paint antlers on a loaf of bread and other surrealist cliches. And this crap sold. Dali's only contribution was a huge signature, because that's all he could do anymore. It was, in its way, a kind of art world fraud, except that the clay lumps and the blue-painted paper and the holograms were at least touched and blessed by the artist. And buyers, foolish as they might be, more or less knew what they were buying. Coincidentally, it was at a Salvador Dali opening at the Nodler Gallery in 1968 where Felice first laid eyes on Roland Ballet. As she recalls, it was love at first sight. It was a Dali opening. I was representing Dali at the time in the United States. And I went with his manager and his wife, and we went to the gallery. And as I walked in, I saw this man at the end of the gallery. And I just thought to myself, my God, that's the man of my life. I was married at the time. You were married? Yes. He was Roland married. Roland was married with I don't know how many mistresses. And there were 38 years between you. Yes. He was so delightfully charming. This is European elegance like doesn't exist anymore. Didn't even really exist then. It was five years later in 1973 when Felice was arriving at Michael Hammer's gallery to meet a client for lunch when fate would bring the two back together this time for good. I went to the gallery and we were up on the second floor and the elevator opened and then... Off the elevator came Roland, and I was like, oh, my God. And I said, I've been in Paris for three months. If I can't pull this off today, there's something definitely wrong with me. <laughs> At the end of lunch, we got up, and Roland came over to me, and he said, you know, I really enjoyed having lunch with you. I find you charming, but I would like it if we could have lunch, just the two of us. Would you do that? And I said, just tell me when. And we had lunch the next day and really practically didn't separate from that moment on. With the sale of Nodler to Armand Hammer, Roland Ballet began organizing his exit. He married Felice. She at 28, he at 66, and the two moved to Paris. They lived like the newlyweds they were, oblivious to their nearly four-decade age difference until Armand Hammer disrupted their idol. Hammer owed a third and final payment to Ballet to complete his purchase of the Nodler Gallery and simply refused to make it. Roland was appalled. He never thought Armand Hammer would be so awful and such a crook, Felice recalled later. A judge had to intervene. We were in Paris, and we got this call from his lawyer that Armand Hammer was going to be in New York in two days, and he wanted to settle it. And Roland, if he really wanted to do this, should come to New York. So we dropped everything and flew to New York. Roland went to, to court, and Hammer was there. And, and the thing was, he said, yes, you know, I'll settle. And, and Roland said, I, I have to go back to France, and I have things to do. And if you want to settle it, I want a bank check for it by the end of the day today. 
Hammer gave the, the check. By the end of the day, the bank check, and we went back to Paris. Sick of the art business, Roland Ballet resigned as Nodler's director and settled in to enjoy what would prove to be 25 more years of conjugal bliss with his young and adoring wife. He owned one of the two buildings on East 70th Street, number 21, which would eventually pass to Felice and be sold by her in 2011 for $15.5 million. But he rarely came to the gallery anymore, so he almost certainly failed to notice. A 29-year-old salesperson who joined Nodler in December 1977, her name was Anne Friedman, and her impact on the gallery would be both profound and tragic. Over many of its 150-plus years, the Nodler had been a living, breathing presence, a character in the story of 20th century art. Its fortunes had risen and sometimes dipped, but its reputation remained intact, and the employees who chose to work there for modest salaries were personally devoted to it. They would find in Anne Friedman a very different kind of gallerist, one much more focused on money than art. Over a 14-year period, Anne Friedman oversaw the selling of more than 60 disputed paintings, reaping $80 million for the gallery, a trio of forgers, and Friedman herself. To the shock and scorn of the entire contemporary art market, she even managed to open a new gallery, Friedman Arts, on the third floor of a townhouse on East 73rd Street, next door to the chic Via Quadrono restaurant. She goes up and down those stairs every day. A free woman, but a shunned presence in this neighborhood of world-renowned dealers. We were coming back from Frank Stella's studio, and he got a call, and now he's boiling. He wants to kill her. That's next time on Art Fraud. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination Take a look and you'll see Into your imagination Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to To change the world, there's nothing to it. There is no life like yours. 
What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment, from DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start, and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Roxanne Gay, the host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Each week, I talk to an interesting person about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. We can't escape politics. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest season of The Next Question with Katie Couric Podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. Hear exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir, Going There, possible. Katie is a pack rat. And she has basically her own archive of sorts in her basements. Plus, Katie explores some of the big news stories she's covered over the decades and the people behind them, like Anita Hill. I thought I could just get back to my life, and that wasn't possible. It was not going to be the same. There's plenty of Katie's signature curiosity and no-holds-barred interviews, along with some of her own revealing answers. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city, and, you know, it, it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.